right, welcome everyone, and welcome Ted. This is Christy Balsell speaking. Ted, are you with us? Yes, yes, I am. Thank you. Okay, great. So, everyone, welcome. Today is September 9th, 2015. September is always such an exciting month in the mitochondrial disease community because it's the month where um, not just nationally in the United States, but really globally, everyone who is affected by mitochondrial disease bands together for the cause of awareness and raising awareness about this disease. And it's been really remarkable to me to see over the last eight years that I've been executive director how we went from such a small community, really peppered around the world, not very connected to really thanks to um, the internet and social media and the passion of patients and families and healthcare providers like our speaker today, that we are such a connected community now and there's so much happening for awareness and there's so much happening at so many different levels from you know, a cookie sale in somebody's school with green ribbons on the cookies to, you know, awareness, advocacy, and education happening at the NIH and the FDA. And it's so exciting to see all of us really coming together for this cause. So September is a great month to talk about something that affects just about everybody who has ever heard the words mitochondrial disease or mitochondrial dysfunction. And that makes you a busy person, um, Ted. Our, our speaker today is Ted Tufus, who's a compounding pharmacist, joining us from one of our um, most special partnerships at Actin Pharmacy. And I'm really excited to introduce Ted today. And Ted, I'll let you tell us a little bit more about yourself, but um, Ted is directly working with patients, and he's the person who is working with a lot of mitochondrial disease patients and families, and training people there at Actin Pharmacy to do the compounding for what we affectionately call the mitococktail, which we're going to learn about today, but essentially describes the series of vitamins and supplements and cofactors that are used as therapy for mitochondrial disease. And um, Ted, you certainly can tell us more about your training and so forth, but I just wanted to start us off by thanking you for joining us today and bringing your expertise and your commitment to patients to this presentation. Before I pass it to you, let me just remind everybody how they can see the slides for today. So if you're listening live, you can go to our website, mitoaction.org, and right there on the homepage under recent news, you'll see the link to today's discussion, which is called Mito Supplement Therapy. And on that page under the Join Us box, you can see where you can view the slides. If you're listening to the recording and, and that is um, outdated, certainly please use the search box on mitoaction.org and just use the search term mito supplement therapy, M-I-T-O supplement therapy. And that will take you right to the page that I'm discussing right now that has the View the Slides link. As always, if you have any questions, I'll be online all during this presentation, and it's director at mitoaction.org. Um, so, Ted, back to you. We're so grateful to have you with us today, and we have so much to talk about. Thank you for joining us, and I'm going to let you go ahead and get started. No problem. Thank you for having me, Christy. Uh, thanks to MitoAction as well, and everybody for uh, listening in today. Um, so a short bit about myself, because I want to delve into the content as soon as we can. Um, so I have a degree in, uh, my undergrad degree in biochemistry, and then I went to pharmacy school afterwards and got a 
uh, doctorate in pharmacy. I've been working with Saad and Acton Pharmacy for uh, quite a few years at this point, uh, recently as a, as a pharmacist and, and working with compounding the lab. Uh, we've, we dealt with a, a, a few different uh, situations as well as uh, mitochondrial disease, uh, which is one of our specialties that we, uh, uh, that we help patients out with. We help with doctors in the area, uh, whether it's insurance coverage, whether it's uh, formulations, whether it's uh, therapies, et cetera. Uh, we've worked very closely with, with doctors and patients uh, for these situations. Um, so I'll go a little bit more into everything uh, uh, with, the, with background in mitochondria, and we'll go into uh, therapy supplements, uh, et cetera. We'll discuss everything a little, uh, to, to some degree, one or the other. Uh, some of it is more detailed than others, uh, and uh, I just want to try and get as, as much of this covered so we can, we can have time for the Q&A. Uh, so without further ado, let's uh, start with some mitochondrial background. Um, basically, every cell in the body contains mitochondria. They are the uh, building blocks for energy, or, or the the factories for energy in the body. Um, every cell requires them. Uh, some tissues are more dependent on mitochondria uh, than others uh, because they're more energy dependent. Um, muscles, uh, uh, nerves, neuronal tissue, brain, etc. They, they're much more uh, dependent on, uh, on mitochondria and energy than other than other tissues may be. Um, ATP is created through different uh, forms or, or different cycles in the body, and you don't need to know these terms in detail, but they, if, you ha if you hear them thrown around, it's nice to be familiar with them, um, particularly the Krebs cycle, also known as the TCA cycle or citric acid cycle, uh, fatty acid oxidation. Uh, those are uh, big players in energy production. And they'll they'll play a role uh, as we'll see later on in, in the slides of exactly where everything is connected with each other. Um, mitochondria run very similar as bacteria. They're almost like mini cells inside of our own cells. Um, they have their own DNA. Uh, they have their own proteins that they make that the rest of the cell doesn't doesn't deal with at all, um, and they replicate all on their own. Um, so unlike, uh, unlike you know, other parts of the cell, they are actually almost independent of the cell, but they provide energy for the cell, and the cell provides them with um, the building blocks to create the energy. So it's kind of a mutual, mutual relationship. Um, the fact that they're very similar to bacteria um, is going to have an effect we'll see, we'll see later on when we're talking about uh, medications that can hurt mitochondria. Um, that there's a very close link with a lot of antibiotics. Um, next picture you'll see is kind of an overview of, of the cell structure. Um, the little bean-shaped thing, the number two uh, uh, on the left, is what basically looks like uh, basically what is a mitochondria. Um, and while there's only three in this picture, I mean, each individual cell can contain hundreds to thousands of mitochondria. Um, it's, it's not very accurate with, uh, with, with this picture, but it's a, it's a good approximation of the general structure of a cell. Um, one thing to, be, to know about mitochondria is that any damage that happens to the mitochondria cannot be reversed. Um, any, unlike most functions of a cell, um, they don't have good repair mechanisms. They're not, they're more like bacteria where they can, they can change and rapidly grow and 
they don't really deal with the consequences of whatever change may have happened inside of them. They just keep growing and growing, whether they're functional or not. Um, and the cell eventually becomes populated with ineffective or non-functioning mitochondria. Um, as, as mitochondria get damaged, let's say you have a thousand mitochondria in a cell, and they all just keep regenerating and regrowing as, as, as the cell keeps growing, or um, they, if they slowly become damaged and there's no repair mechanisms to either, produce, either to kill off the bad mitochondria to um, produce more, more energy-producing mitochondria or um, uh, basically repair whatever damage has been happened, the cell eventually starts to become, become populating with more and more damaged mitochondria or non-functional mitochondria or semi-functional mitochondria is probably more accurate. Um, with, as the cell becomes more and more popular with that, it, eventually there's, like a, there's a shift in the functionality of the cell. Now it become, goes from really good energy producing slowly to less energy producing to very minimally producing. And that crossover into the minimally producing uh, uh, cell is what's called the threshold effect. Uh, it, it, and as individual cells become affected, whole tissues can slowly become affected with these ineffective mitochondria. Um, while mitochondrial damage can be inherited, uh, usually from the mother side we see that and the egg cell that, uh, uh, during before uh, fetal production, there is mitochondria in both the sperm and the egg. But when they merge, it seems that nearly all the mitochondria come from the mother. Um, and that may or may not be the case. There is some, there is some question mark of whether uh, sperm do contribute some, uh, some mitochondria to the, the fetal cells, but mostly what's been the mainstay of, of thought process is that it all comes from the mother. But it's not necessarily all mitochondria, it's all mitochondrial function with the, um, with the DNA or the damage or anything like that. Some of it does come from the cell, from the uh, nuclear DNA or, or DNA that's found for the main part of the cell. Because like I said about that symbiotic relationship between the mitochondria and the cell, it does rely on some, uh, some uh, forms of energy or some proteins from the main part of the cell to make the mitochondria function. And the mitochondria in return produces energy and gives that to the cell. Um, and if there's any damage in the DNA or in that process of that transfer, which is not necessarily reliant 100% on the mitochondria, that can be a situation uh, where, where it's inherited from one or both parents as well. Um, the mitochondria themselves um, may just somehow become damaged and there might not be coping mechanisms to deal with that damage, which we'll see a little bit later on. Um, and that, that can be something that's not inherited. It's, it's the starting off at, at in a new generation. So there's, there's so many different ways that mitochondrial um, deficiencies or disease or, or dysfunction can, can happen. Uh, it, it's very unique in, in that situation where it's not like, for example, cystic fibrosis is a known genetic def uh, defect in one particular gene that creates, uh, that creates the problem. It's always the same. In this situation, it's, it can be very different or very, um, uh, very plastic amongst individuals. 
So one one big player in everything in the energy production is the Krebs cycle. Uh, I know a lot of you are probably getting uh, chills from remembering this from uh, high school biology or, <laughs> or anything, and I apologize for putting it in there. But the biggest thing to take from this slide is that this is one of the uh, key components of energy production. Uh, specifically, if you look at the center part of the uh, of the area, you're looking at the acetyl uh, acetyl CoA, which is going to be a very critical role uh, for energy production later on. Where we'll see with with other uh, other energy molecules being brought in together to form acetyl CoA and then enter into the into the Krebs cycle to make energy. Uh, this is found in the in the mitochondria. The Krebs cycle takes place in the mitochondria, um, and like I said, it, it requires some energy uh, energy molecules to come from the cell, and that's where we're starting with the uh, pyruvic uh, the, the pyruvic acid, and that's coming in from the cellular uh, the cellular side. So that's that's one of the give and take molecules that that the two are sharing. Um, the electron transport chain is the second most critical, well, not second most, but second critical part of uh, energy production. It's the site of most of the energy production, but is heavily reliant on the uh, Krebs cycle in order to get to the electron transport chain. Um, there are five complexes. Uh, you don't need to worry about the specific names about them or anything. Just know that there are five specific sets, and some patients are diagnosed with a complex one deficiency or complex three deficiency or anywhere along those lines. This is what they're talking about. They're talking about the electron transport chain. They're talking about specific parts of it that are deficient in certain patients. They may not function properly. Uh, there may be uh, uh, less energy production because of that non-functioning uh, part of it, because like any chain, things pass from one part to uh, from the beginning to the end. Which, if you look at the next page or the next slide, you'll see that they're lined up, and you see the arrows going in a one direction, and that that's going to be showing if there's a deficiency in, in one area, it's going to it's going to block up the energy production and basically create like a trickle, almost like a dam uh, with with a stream. And you're not going to let a downstream energy functioning happen. Um, going back to slide seven, real quick, uh, the previous slide, um, you'll see uh, you'll see where the, the technical names from NADH CoQ10 reductase. Um, the big thing to take away to take from that is that CoQ10 is in there, and as you can see, it's in complex one, complex two, complex three. Those are there. It's a key component, CoQ10, of those complexes, uh, and it's going to be one of the main parts of, this, of supplementation, which we'll see later on. Ted, let me remind, let me just jump in because sure. those are such great diagrams. If you're looking online at these slides and they look small, you can just click on the little box that has a diagonal arrow in the lower right-hand corner, and that will make the slides full screen so that you can really appreciate um, these diagrams that Ted's referring to. Okay, this this is this is um, super helpful. Ted, go ahead. No problem. Thanks. Um, the other the other part that uh, you want to look at is the reductase or oxidase. Um, that's going to play a big role into a, a couple of things that we'll talk about in the, rea the chemical reactions that are happening. Just to be familiar with the name, uh, oxidation and reduction are the two biggest and opposite reactions in energy production. In energy production, something is oxidized. At the same time, something else is reduced. And that's going to play a role in the, in the supplementation. It's going to play a role into what we're talking about with antioxidants, into the damage that's happening in mitochondria, 
et cetera. So that's, that's the other key thing to take away from, from this particular slide. Um, going back to the diagram of the electron transport chain, I wanted to point out that there's three stars in, in, the, uh, in the picture. Those three stars are critical sites of um, reactive oxygen species, uh, which is basically a, um, a free radical. Um, it's, uh, oxidative, uh, it's an oxidative molecule that can cause damage to the cell or to the mitochondrion. Um, one of the downsides of producing energy is that you produce these free radicals. Now, in a, in a normal, healthy individual, this is happening as well as in somebody with mitochondrial disorder. In a normal, healthy individual, there are mechanisms to either reduce these, um, uh, these free radicals into harm, harmless water through, as you can see, the, the bottom part, there's a couple of, there's like three blue ovals, and those are different enzymes in, the, in, in people that take these free radicals and turn them into harmless water. Now, that, those may be compromised in some individuals, so that there's no, none of this quenching of the free radicals, and the free radicals are allowed, to, are, are allowed in the mitochondria or in the cell to go through and damage either proteins or fatty acids or DNA and therefore cause, and DNA cause a mutation in a protein. It can, it can bind to a protein and cause it to be non-functional. So for example, complex one is a protein. Uh, let's say a free radical that's produced from complex one isn't quenched. Well, it might bind somewhere in complex one or enough of them may bind in complex one to actually twist the shape of the protein. And like, like you see when you fry an egg, you know, what you, what, what you started off with, which is, you know, a liquid protein, and then you fry it and it becomes this hard protein, you can never go back to liquid protein no matter how much you cool it. You can't unfry it. Um, and that's basically what can happen if enough uh, free radicals bind to proteins. They'll, they'll, they'll change their structure and basically make them non-functional. And the other, th at least the flip side on the other side of, you may not you may not have the ability to produce normal functional either proteins or DNA or, or the repair mechanisms to take away those free radicals after they've already bound to you know to, to re repair the damage and that can lead to mitochondrial disease or mitochondrial disorder. Um, it could be a combination of both situations. It could be. It could be that none of this damage is happening, but the individual, uh, you know, uh, complexes or other proteins that are necessary are just non-functional to begin with. Um, so the, again, there's there's a variety of, of situations that are happening in mitochondrial disease or mitochondrial disorder to uh, set somebody up with energy deficiencies. Um, this kind of shows uh, in the left-hand picture on the next slide. Uh, shows a, a much more blown up part of the uh, conversion of the free, rad free radicals of the oxygen into you know, harmless water. And on the right-hand side is showing what I was kind of speaking about a, a, few, a few seconds ago regarding the free radical, um, the, the little red O2 uh, that's in section B um, that is binding to different parts of like a protein that's causing damage or it's uh, binding to DNA, 
uh, or lipids are causing any sort of damage from there. Um, going uh, going forward with the um, uh, the location of the mitochondria, so now you're having tissues that need to make this energy that they that they are having to um, produce this energy, very, very highly energy dependent tissues, brain, skeleton, muscle, heart, kidney, liver, and they are um, the most vulnerable to this damage because they're trying to produce the energy. They're producing these free radicals, and it's creating, it's creating these issues. So while you need to have the energy production, you also have to find, find a way to, to best fix these free radicals or you know, increase the repair mechanisms in the body. Um, there are some available therapies with mitochondrial disease. I'm only going to really talk about the first one, the supplementation of nutrients, vitamins, and cofactors. Everything else is not really addressed in, uh, from a pharmacy side, uh, more from a medical side, and it would be something that you can speak with a doctor about, um, but it's not really something I'm going to touch up on. Um, with the supplements, you really have uh, vitamins, cofactors, and antioxidants as being the, uh, the, the front lines of, of therapy. Um, everything is going to vary from individuals. It's, it's not going to be the same for two people, even though they may test potentially the same for the same, uh, as far as genetic, uh, uh, genetic mutation. Um, and that's a very interesting situation because usually you would think if you have the same genetic, genetic issue, you're going to have the same response to the medication or you're going to have the same problems. But everybody is so different biochemically in the way they process things that it's not, it's not necessarily 100% genetic, there's a lot of other things happening at the same time. And it's, it's going to be very different for individuals. That being said, doctors may start out patients on the same, you know, two patients who may have dissimilar situations on the same mitochondrial cocktail or same basic concoction of, of supplements and change them over time, depending on the individual's response to certain parts of the uh, um, mitochondrial therapy, or, or maybe new information comes out, there's, new, um, there's a change in maybe the way that we were looking at a certain uh, genetic test or anything like that. So there are going to be changes that will happen over time. Um, a lot of information about mitochondrial disease isn't from a clinical standpoint, meaning there aren't clinical trials, there aren't you know, commercially available drugs that have been studied specifically for mitochondrial disease. A lot of the basics of therapy come from the article uh, Sumit Parikh et al., uh, A Modern Approach to the Treatment of Mitochondrial Disease, which is found on MitoAction's website, and it outlines the basics of mitochondrial therapy, including a lot of the supplements I'm going to be speaking about. Um, a lot of prescribers use it as a starting point. Uh, it can, it's, it's kind of in between um, lay and medical speak in, in there, so it can be something that you can, you know, you try to pick up and read and, and see the information that's there. Um, there may be some things that may be, you know, more, more clinical or anything like that, but it's, I think it's a very good starting article for both patients and prescribers. Um, CoQ10, which we said was a big part of the electron transport chain and energy production, um, is also one of the main supplements. Not only is it utilized in the electron transport chain or in energy production, it's also used as an antioxidant on its own. So those free radicals we were talking about that cause damage, it can help quench those free radicals or, or neutralize them, uh, if you will. 
it is involved in other functions in the body that is separate from energy production, which is a question of whether you know high doses or over high doses are are okay or not. That's why um, making sure that you know you have a, a medical professional who is guiding your therapy is always key. Um, that it's involved in programmed cell death or apoptosis. It's involved in the permeability of mitochondrial pores, uh, as well as cellular signaling, um, you know, from one cell to another. When when one cell wants another cell to do another function, it has to send out a chemical signal, and it, uh, CoQ10 can be utilized in that situation. So it's it's something that you know you have to make sure it's over the counter. Yes, it's a supplement. Yes, but. It, you know, at higher doses, it has other has other functions. So you want to make sure that you're not you're not taking something more than what you need to. Um, fairly insoluble in water, which has some uh, impact in compounding. Um, there are three different types of CoQ10. There's ubiquinone, which is the most common. It's been around for forever. It's been utilized in a lot of compounding, a lot of over-the-counter formulations. Um, there's ubiquinol, which is more recent uh, form. It is something that does exist in the body at any given stage. Ubiquinone and ubiquinol uh, inter, inter, um, inter exist, I should say, at the same at the same time. Uh, when the body needs one form or another, it it, it will convert the molecule. Uh, but as far as uh, synthetic or available for for human consumption, ubiquinol is only something that's been recently uh, been available in comparison. And idebanone is a synthetic version of CoQ10. It's not found in the body, um, but it's uh, theorized that it, because it's a different, slightly different chemical structure, it may be more beneficial in certain patients, uh, especially those who have neurological issues like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, and potentially uh, uh, mitochondrial patients who have more, um, more neurologic-related issues. Again, it, people are going to respond differently to the different forms of ubiquinone, or CoQ10, whether it's ubiquinone, ubiquinol, or adebinone, um, something that you know you can discuss with your doctor whether you know one is more right or, or one is more more going to have more an effect or more functional uh, uh, for yourself or, or for uh, whoever you're caring for. Um, and uh, the last part of the, the CoQ10 is that you know e um, excess amounts of CoQ10 are actually stored in the body for a long time. So that's why you want to make sure anything is a fat soluble. Uh, especially vitamins, uh, you want to make sure that your dosing, if you're dosing at higher doses, is something that you're doing with a uh, medical professional's um, uh, oversight because it, it can be harmful in the body. Um, riboflavin, also known as a vitamin B2, uh, is a key component of a lot of proteins, especially flavoproteins. What flavoproteins do in the body are uh, remove free radicals, um, which, again, is a, is a key issue in mitochondrial disorder. And they help in DNA repair, which, again, whether it's mitochondrial DNA or, nu or uh, nuclear DNA or cellular DNA, it's going to help in both of those situations. So it is something that is, is going to be utilized by the body in, in both situations. And it's also used, like CoQ10, in, in that apoptosis. Uh, less, less critical uh, information as far as that goes, but in... Um, in certain areas, in certain in certain situations, like uh, multiple ACEL-CoA dehydrogenase deficiency or MAD, um, it's an inborn error in metabolism. Riboflavin is a key player in helping helping with that uh, situation. 
It's also key in complex one and two, along with CoQ10 and, and, and the Krebs cycle. Um, without riboflavin or those flavor proteins, it's going to be, it can be an issue where you're not going to get ideal energy production. Um, side effects of high doses of this can cause anorexia, nausea, and a change in urine color. It's a very, very bright orange color, and it, will, it can change the urine color uh, bright orange or, or very, very bright yellow. That's because it's, it's a water-soluble vitamin. It gets excreted in the urine. Um, creatine. Uh, creatine is found in all cells. Um, we produce it as humans. Uh, we also get it from our diet uh, when we eat meat. The difficulty with some patients is that they either cannot produce creatine or they have a hard time absorbing it through the diet. So supplementation in, in, is, is necessary in that situation. Creatine is not directly related to energy production or energy utilization per se. What it does is when the body is facing uh, what's called anaerobic crisis, um, which a lot of patients who have metabolic disorders or, uh, or, or mitochondrial disease, they face a situation where there's not enough oxygen in the tissue in order to produce energy. Um, oxygen is a key player. Without oxygen, it's the fuel for the fire. It's the fuel to help make ATP and energy. So while, you're, while your body's in, in, um, in anaerobic crisis, creatine acts as a energy storage reservoir. Excess um, phosphates for ATP are stored on the creatine molecule. And when ATP is not available, the, those phosphates come off of the creatine and get utilized for energy. In and of itself, it's only a short-term solution for, for energy uh, energy's crisis. But if creatine is utilized, or if, if creatine is utilized by the body to help get that extra bit of energy out into the muscle tissue and the muscle gets utilized that one extra time or two extra times more than it could have been utilized before, it helps build muscle mass. You'll hear about this uh, for weight trainers or boxers or athletes use a lot of creatine. Yes, it, it creates a bulking uh, situation because a lot of water is necessary in order to dilute creatine and, and keep it from forming crystals in the body. But what it's actually doing is those extra reps that everybody's able to, to do with those extra steps, those extra weight lift exercise, that's what helps build the extra muscle mass. That what you couldn't do before, you're able to do one extra or two extra times. And then over time, that builds up and builds up and, and builds more muscle mass. Um, levocarnitine is uh, critical in the conversion of fatty acids into energy. Remember how it said in the Krebs cycle, the acetyl-CoA, uh, to pay attention to that part. Well, fatty acids are broken down into acetyl-CoA. So where sugars have to go through this whole big giant process in order to get to that pyruvate molecule and then make it to acetyl-CoA, levocarnitine helps fatty acids to just, you know, basically bypass all that and just get injected right into the Krebs cycle. Um, that's an oversimplification, but it's, it's the best kind of best way of, of putting it. Um, the acetyl-CoA then will help, you know, jumpstart the Krebs cycle. You get more, more production for the electron transport chain to utilize, uh, uh, more molecules for the electron trans transport chain to utilize. 
It, it's also useful in some patients who um, have a, excess acyl compounds. Um, there's a theory that excess acyl compounds can become toxic, especially in the uh, brain or in the nervous system. And it seems that creatine or carnitine therapy, I, I apologize, carnitine therapy can help with, uh, with that situation. Um, while it is not uh, lacking in mitochondrial disease, uh, carnitine per se, um, addition of carnitine supplementation increases the amount of free carnitine, which is what is able to be utilized. And, uh, and this is, uh, um, carnitine is something that's available commercially as tablets and liquid. So as far from, a, from an insurance standpoint, I'll just jump to that real quick, it's a lot easier to have this covered versus you know, having it compounded or getting it as a supplement. Um, it does have a side effect that causes body, urine, and fecal odor changes, and it's more of a fishy smell, uh, and that's because it's, it's almost like it has an ammonia-like quality in the, in, the compound, or in, the, in, the, uh, in the chemical structure, and that's what causes that, that smell. Some patients find it intolerant, especially at higher doses. It does get excreted as a whole molecule in, uh, through the, the sweat glands, and that, that can um, uh, have some patients not want to continue with the therapy. Um, slide 20 is just kind of a more complicated version of what I was what I was saying how carnitine is being utilized. It's more of a for your information. It's not necessarily something you have to really look at and, and know in detail or anything. Um, folinic acid or leucovorin is a uh, reduced form of folic acid. Um, in a lot of uh, synthetic pathways, specifically in uh, DNA synthesis. Um, it, it donates a methyl group. Some patients have problems with methylation, um, which there's multiple forms of folic acid or folinic acid. It exists as um, L-methylfolate, so patients who have issues with methylation, that's the type that they would take. Um, there's also just, there's, you know, just folic acid, which is the, the basic building block of leucovorin. Um, it's theorized that mitochondrial disease may have some cerebral folate deficiency. No one's really sure as how or why this happens, but leucovorin can be utilized by neuronal tissue, so it is something that is a, a big staple of mitochondrial therapy. And it's mostly seen as a deficiency in Kieran-Sayer syndrome, um, and which is a subtype of mitochondrial disorder. Um, folic acid and folic acid can cause itchiness, so that is a side effect, although I haven't heard anybody say that they've had it. So, I mean, I don't know how, how frequent or how often that is seen. Uh, something that everybody might, might have heard of recently is N-acetylcysteine. This is uh, something that's been commercially available for patients who have cystic fibrosis. Uh, it's also been used for Tylenol overdoses and supplementation in kidney disease. Um, in mitochondrial therapy, like we said, kidney disease or, or kidneys, uh, kidneys, liver, and other other very energy dependent tissues um, need some sort of antioxidant. Well, it works as an antioxidant on its own, but it also works as a replenishing agent for glutathione. Uh, glutathione, it, part of the structure of glutathione, which is the uh, three colored um, uh, structure in the uh, on the slide in the corner, part of that structure is acetylcysteine. Um, which is the main part of N-acetylcysteine. 
Um, glutathione is needs uh, is is the body's natural antioxidant. Very very powerful. And while when glutathione is oxidated or oxidized in its um, chemical reaction in order to help protect the body, it becomes unavailable at that point. What N-acetylcysteine does is that it reduces the glutathione, the oxidized glutathione, back into its normal state. And that allows glutathione to have a function in the body again. Patients who have a difficulty in glutathione generation or they have a lot of, uh, a lot of oxidative damage and glutathione just can't keep up, either the production of glutathione can't keep up or the turnover of glutathione naturally in the body can't keep up, you know, N-acetylcysteine is a great, uh, great way to supplement that. Um, it helps reduce the glutathione, and it helps keep glutathione more active uh, in the body. So you, you have kind of utiliz utilizing the body's own, own antioxidant, a very strong antioxidant, as a continuous, uh, continuous force in the body without having to supplement a lot of other uh, um, antioxidants in the body. And it may, might seem to make sense that you want to use glutathione just straight up. It's like, okay, if that's a great anti antioxidant, why don't we continue just using that? There's a few problems with that. Orally, it just gets uh, digested and not absorbed as a whole molecule to have a function. As individual molecules, it's not really going to help as an antioxidant. Um, topically, it can be utilized and gets into the blood very well, but it's fairly expensive, hard to get it covered, um, and it's hard to have a continuous influx of glutathione into the body. IV administration would be ideal, but again, expense is, is hard. Uh, it is a continuous delivery system, but it's also cumbersome to patients because you have to walk around with basically a IV bag uh, uh, and continuous administration of the glutathione. Uh, and acetylcysteine is fairly cheaper, um, and it comes usually in powder and capsules because the uh, liquid formulations aren't really stable for very long. Um, it does pose a slight problem in therapy. Um, it has a very powerful smell. Getting children to take the medication can sometimes be very hard because it has a very, very strong sulfur rotten egg type smell. If somebody can swallow capsules, fine because you're not going to get that taste and you get some odor, but not nearly as much. Uh, and that's usually the better way of getting N-acetylcysteine or NAC uh, administered. And whatever doesn't get utilized of NAC into the body for glutathione replenishment will still stick around and be its own antioxidant. Um, and those, those are more of the key ones that, that get utilized a lot in mitochondrial therapy. Other ones that you'll see a lot are uh, thiamine, which are used, uh, which is used in carbohydrate metabolism. So, in order to get to that, you know, pyruvate molecule to to get into the Krebs cycle, you're you're going to use thiamine in that situation. Uh, vitamin C and E, they are both antioxidants. One is water soluble, the vitamin C, and one is lipid soluble, the vitamin E. So that allows it for for actions in different parts of the cell. Uh, Alpha-lipoic acid or dyslipoic acid is another powerful antioxidant, but it doesn't have any effect on energy production per se. Uh, vitamin B6, uh, very key in neuronal tissue development. Um, if uh, patients are having um, uh, damage to the nerves or um, 
having like neuropathy or nerve pain, vitamin B6 is a very good addition to the uh, uh, to the vitamin cocktail because that allows for um, that allows for better um, uh, utilization by the nerve. Vitamin B3, um, if there's deficiency in B3, patients tend to have a slower metabolism. Um, and vitamin B12 is key in creating a lot of different tissues in the body, most specifically blood tissue, um, as well as DNA synthesis and DNA utilization in the body. Um, the next slide, uh, slide 27, is something that we've worked with a certain uh, prescriber offices. Uh, it's kind of a general dose range for a lot of these supplements we've been talking about. Um, as you can tell, they tend to be higher than FDA uh, recommended doses for uh, you know, over-the-counter supplementation or dietary intake or anything like that. Um, the way that those normal RDAs are set up, the recommended daily allowance for, for those, the vitamins, they're based on healthy people. They're based on people who don't have these deficiencies, who don't have a need for these utilizations. Patients who have metabolic issues are going to need higher doses. And that's where you need a prescriber or a medical professional overseeing your therapy. Just because these may be recommended dose ranges isn't something that you want to just go out and take a whole bunch of medications for. Uh, because a lot, like I said, a lot of the fat-soluble vitamins are going to have problems at higher doses. B6, which while it's a B vitamin and water-soluble, if you take it at too high of dose, it can actually lead to the same symptoms that you're trying to treat, like the nerve pain, nerve damage. Um, all vitamins can cause GI upset, and that's really because the GI tract is trying to dissolve these vitamins, whether you're taking a Centrum Silver over-the-counter or whether you're taking compounded vitamins or just you know, taking a, a bunch of supplements, the GI tract tries to dissolve it and just dumps a whole bunch of water into the GI tract. You can mitigate that um, by taking it with food and water. That helps relieve some of, that, some of those symptoms. Also, starting the doses at lower doses. Let's say you were going to take you know, 10 capsules a day of, of the vitamin supplement. You don't have to start right off the bat at 10 capsules. You can start off at, you know, uh, half that or a quarter of that amount, and over every every four to five days or a week or so, increase it until you're at your full amount. The reason for that is the body slowly gets used to the fact that the vitamins are going to be there, so the side effects be, tend to become less pronounced or completely gone. Um, whereas dumping everything all at once is not going to be quite as ideal. With, with that in mind, some patients have this more often, see, see the side effect more often even at low doses, and other patients at high doses don't see it at all. It's going to be, again, a very individual response. But it's not something that you should, you should be discouraged about taking the vitamins. It should be something that you can speak with either your doctor or your pharmacist or somebody in order to help come up with a, a, a strategy to help mitigate these, these side effects. Uh, overall, most of these medications are safe. However, like I said, at higher doses, it can be an issue over a long period of time. CoQ10 can have uh, pro-oxidant effects at certain, at certain doses. If your body doesn't need it and is not utilizing it, it can actually lead to harm. Uh, creatine, uh, it can crystallize in the kidney. Um, so it's something with patients who have um, kidney problems, you know, they should definitely be monitored, you know, how much 
uh, how their kidneys are functioning when they're on it, before it, et cetera. Um, you know, we spoke about the B complex and the B6 that causes the neuropathies. Vitamin E at prolonged doses greater than 400 IUs per day uh, can cause uh, heart problems potentially. As far as interactions medications, they are fairly well tolerated. Certain medications like erythromycin and warfarin will have uh, issues with these, whether it's causing the vitamins to be less effective or in the case of warfarin, making the warfarin more effective as a blood thinner, so you have to be very careful. Um, the biggest thing to worry about is if you're taking these vitamins along with any sort of laxatives that are uh, bulk forming, so fiber ones, um, for example, citrocell um, or uh, osmotic laxatives like um, bowel prep kits or Marilax, for example, those will tend to either bind or wash out the vitamins when you take them, or any drug for that matter. It's not necessarily just the, just the vitamins. Um, so it's something to definitely to be careful of and speak with uh, your pharmacist or your doctor regarding all the medications that you're, that you're on, whether it's over-the-counter or prescription. Uh, cholesteramine has the same, same situation. It's another um, it's a cholesterol binder uh, that's, that's utilized for some patients, but it can have, an, it can have a problem with, um, with CoQ10 specifically and other vitamins as well. Um, avoiding mitochondrial toxins is key. I know that there's uh, this chart that I basically summarized here is posted on MitoAction. It was developed by Dr. Sims uh, a few years ago. Um, I don't want to go into too much of the detail, but uh, if you see a couple of antibiotics are listed on there, like we were speaking before, uh, the uh, mitochondria are basically like little bacteria that are inside of your cell. So some antibiotics uh, versus others can have uh, issues. Um, and finding, uh, finding uh, what therapy is going to be key with what supplements you're on is something to uh, talk with your doctor and your pharmacist about, making sure that you're going to be you're not taking something that may, you know, make the therapy ineffective, or if your cost benefit, uh, you know, discuss that with your doctor. If you know the the, the risk of your making the mitochondrial damage worse or, or, or negating the effect of the mitochondrial cocktail is high, what you're going to gain out of a certain drug is, is for benefit is low, then maybe something to look at, or or vice versa. Um, one thing about therapy expectations with uh, any sort of mitochondrial supplement. Um, you, it's not something that's going to be, you start it today, tomorrow you're going to feel like $100, uh, you know, $100 million. You need a, a little bit of time, about a one to two month, uh, uh, one to two month assessment period uh, where you're trying everything out, seeing how you're doing, seeing how, what your response is, what your side effects are, how you're feeling. One of the things I let a lot of my patients know when they ask me, is this worth it for me? Uh, because co-pays are high or the insurance didn't cover for whatever reason, I tell them to start a diary. Um, start one to two weeks before starting therapy and track, you know, how you're feeling, whether your symptoms of mitochondrial disease are, you know, fatigue only or whether they're more involved in that or whether it's, you know, cognizance or if you're, you know, you're following a child, you know, how their, how their uh, behavior or learning patterns are, if there's any changes or anything like that. It's worth it's worth noting. It can be cumbersome if you you don't have to do this during the entire time you're on the therapy, but at least for the first few months, just to see whether you you know it's something that there is an effective change. Because you may not just by starting it be like oh I feel better, and then you're like well I, I don't know did I really feel better? But you can go back and reference it and be like yes you know on a 
scale of one to ten, ten being the worst fatigue I've ever had, and one being, you know, no problem at all. My fatigue is uh, was a five before I started, and now it's a two. Now you have some sort of, you know, uh, comparison point that you that you can go back and say, okay, this was helping me or not. Um, and you can always, you know, if worse comes to worse and you feel like it's not it's not helping, you can stop it, continue the diary, see how you're doing. And then if you see a noticeable drop in, in how you're feeling, um, then you can always, you know, go back on the therapy if you have to. Um, formulations, uh, depending on the pharmacy and its capability, there's different ways of uh, formulating it. Um, on top of that, there's also some patients that are going to benefit over one type of a formulation versus another. Um, each has their, you know, positives and negatives, and I'll go over a few of them uh, to some extent. Um, capsules uh, help help with taste. If somebody has a taste aversion to the the bitterness or the or the, um, the harsh taste of some of the vitamins, that the capsules are great. But you can be taking anywhere from two to ten capsules or more a day just on the vitamins alone, uh, not bring into account the creatine or anything else. Um, powders are also good uh, for from a taste perspective. You have a calibrated scoop that can be flavored. Uh, if you so choose, or you can mix it in with like a smoothie or yogurt or something like that to help make it more palatable. Um, but you're, you're measuring out powder sort of like a country time lemonade or tang or any of those things, and then you're mixing it. Um, again, there's still a taste, uh, taste in there, and some patients do have an aversion to it. Suspensions, um, while uh, they're really beneficial for patients who have absorption disorders, uh, suspensions help make things more... Um, uh, more better absorbed if they need like an oil base for an absorption or you create, an, you create a, um, a, a two-phase system so there's water and oil in there and then the, you know certain drugs that are soluble in one phase versus another they uh, they tend to dissolve there better and then are absorbed better in the body they can be great in that situation they're fairly concentrated um, the downside is really that taste aversion um, it's it's hard to get uh, the concentrated taste out. It can be, uh, you know, you can add things on the pharmacy side to help it taste better, whether it's certain uh, sweeteners or, you know, flavoring agents. Um, you can also mix the liquid with something else if, if you want to. Um, so there, there's, again, you know, uh, ways of mitigating that. And something you can speak with a pharmacist about whether your child or yourself is having difficulty taking something. And you can always play around with the different formulations. Um, gummies are something that are possible, but it's very hard to get a lot of the dose into one gummy. Only 200 milligrams really can be formed into one gummy. So if you have a huge dose, you might be taking, you know, 30 gummies a day in order to get the, the doses that you need. Um, and effervescent packets are also something that, that can be formulated. Usually tastes better because you've got that fizzing Alka-Seltzer-like Situation, so there's less contact with the drugs on the, the taste buds, but it's a lot of mixing, it's a lot of packets, um, and again, some patients don't respond to the, the taste quite as well or, or that sensation as well as other patients. Um, all formulations should have the daily dose divided uh, into at least twice a day administration, and what that does is it helps mitigate the side effects of GI upset. Um, it helps increase absorption because the GI tract is not flooded with the medication all at once. Um, you can divide it up to like four times a day if necessary or multiple times a day. 
the downside is compliance. You know, can I you know dose myself four times a day versus only twice a day? You know, well, morning and afternoon is easier versus morning, noon, afternoon, and night. Um, you know, when you have children, you know, trying to get them to take a bad tasting medication uh, multiple times a day, that can sometimes be a challenge. Or you know, with schools or or camps or anything like that, that sometimes is a challenge. But it might be something that you know might be more ideal in a situation where um, you know the side effects are a problem, or you think there's an absorption issue, or anything like that. Um, as far as safety of medications, so one thing you want to make sure, especially if you're buying over-the-counter medications, is that you um, you try and avoid buying uh, non-trusted sources. One thing about over-the-counter supplements is that no over-the-counter supplement is FDA approved. Uh, what that means is that anybody who makes an over-the-counter supplement does not necessarily have to undergo certain testing, doesn't have to prove that this has this much drug in there. Um, there are certain companies that sell over-the-counter supplements, um, and this is by no means an endorsement, just like a, just a statement of what, what we've seen over the years. Uh, Metagenics, Epic for Health, Solgar, Pure Encapsulation, et cetera. They, they actively announce on their website, we test to make sure that our end product is what it says on the label. We've, you know, we've tested this, we've tested that. So there, there's a certain, um, uh, there's a certain uh, culture of, of, of accountability with, the, with these uh, companies as far as making sure that what they're, what they're packaging is what, what they want your, the patient to get. Other companies don't really have that out there. Whether you can call up the company and find out whether it's true or not, that's always a possibility. Whether you know, if you if you find one particular brand, you're like, oh, I want to know about this one because it's a good you know cost for me. Call them up, find out. Do they do any quality control? What do they do for quality control? Um, those are all important questions because you know you don't want to have something that can be contaminated with another drug source in there or with you know, something completely different, or it doesn't have anything in there, you want to make sure. Um, with pharmacies, we get our, our, our medications from FDA-approved wholesalers, but compounds are not FDA-approved, OK? So just like, just like supplements, we're not manufacturers of drugs. Only manufacturers of commercially available medications are, have FDA-approved products that make it to the shelf. They've undergone clinical trials, et cetera. What we do is we make individual medication for individual patients. We source our stuff from FDA-approved facilities, which means that where we're getting it from, there's a track record of quality of the powders that we're utilizing or anything that we're utilizing in the compounding process. Um, so we get something in from a wholesaler. We check to make sure that they did an analysis. OK, now we look at the analysis. What exactly went through there? Did, does this pass muster for our, our criteria? No? Well, then we're not using it. Yes? Okay, now we're going to use it for our patients. Um, pharmacies that are PCAB accredited, Pharmacy Compounding Accreditation Board, um, they, uh, they have to follow these guidelines. So more often than not, you're going to find them you know, doing, doing the process that I kind of just outlined. Uh, that's only one aspect of that. Um, you can always speak with the pharmacy, make sure that you know, they're getting their sources from, from an FDA-approved wholesaler, you know, find out what their testing is like. Um, they're, you know, they're all going to be able to provide you with that information. Um, 
and I, I, a lot of questions, one question that gets always brought up to, to me is, is this sourced from China or from India or something like that? That's not always an answer that is going to be relevant because powders can come from FDA-approved wholesalers that do come from uh, outside the country sources, um, but they still meet the quality standards that they have to. Um, that this might be the only source of a certain medication. Uh, but again, is the quality there? Is, has, has that medication been checked to make sure that it is it, it meets a certain quality uh, quality endpoint? And that, that's more key than where, where the individual medication uh, uh, comes from. Um, using trusted over-the-counter medication sources tend to be more expensive than just getting anything that's this CoQ10 at any, at any place. Uh, or creatine or anything like that for that matter. Um, but it does buy a bit of peace of mind that you know that whatever your money you're spending, you're also getting a, a dose that is going to potentially be beneficial and it's not you know, contaminated or harmful. Um, with compounding, it's actually more expensive than over-the-counter sources. And that's because of a lot of that quality uh, stuff that I was telling you get, gets put into there from the FDA-approved wholesalers you know, from the pharmacies, from their standpoints, from the testing and everything like that that they do, there's a lot, there's a lot more processes involved in there. However, with a pharmacy, and again, this is different from state to state, but, you know, at least in Massachusetts, getting a prescription, well, in Massachusetts, we're required to have a prescription for any compound, whether it's an over-the-counter supplement, it's still a prescription item in Massachusetts. If it's made by a pharmacy, that's the situation. And that may be true across most states. I, I don't know. Each state has their own different laws. Um, but most insurance companies require a prescription to be covered by the insurance company. So getting a prescription from the doctor allows for that first step in getting the insurance company to pay for it. Insurance companies aren't going to pay for, you know, the CoQ10 capsules you bought over the counter at a pharmacy or health food store or wherever you bought it. But there's a chance that if you get a prescription in the process through a pharmacy, that they'll pay for, whether it's right off the bat or working with the pharmacy and the doctor's office in order to get a prior authorization, uh, which means an exception for coverage. Um, it does take a few days to sometimes a few months in order to get uh, PAs to go through through the insurance company. Um, but you know, it can be worth the fight, especially from a financial standpoint, uh, to get these medications covered. Uh, I'm sure Christy uh, has information on, on MitoAction uh, you can feel free to correct me on this uh, if, if there's any advocacy happening in individual states as far as trying to get this stuff covered or with individual uh, insurance companies. Uh, I know that they've been, they've been great in, in the fight for uh, getting medications covered for patients. Um, and, you know, there's, there's all sorts of uh, different situations in different states, and that's, that's kind of tricky, so I don't want to speak for, for every state out there. Um, and the last few slides, pretty much are just additional slides that kind of touch up on uh, where I got the information from, or uh, two additional uh, mitochondrial slides that you know you can you can read through, but they uh, they they kind of play a part in the background of the, of the mitochondria. Um, so I guess I am I'm good unless right. there's anything you wanted me to add to it. That's this has been um, so thorough and helpful, Ted, and I appreciate you breaking it down in this way so that you know when we're taking these supplements and thinking about them for <clears throat> ourselves, our children, our family members, um, even for our patients as a healthcare provider, it helps so much to understand a little bit of the rationale 
on use and it helps then and also to be able to make better choices about what to use. So we're going to open up the lines for questions, but um, I just wanted to remind everyone that you can also email me your questions, director at mitoaction.org. Let me also remind you that you can use star six to mute or unmute your phone. So if you're on a cell phone or if you're talking to someone in the background or there's dogs or kids or other noise, we can hear it. So um, once we unmute everyone, please just be considerate of that and use star six to mute and unmute your line. This is just like a virtual classroom, so we'll just take turns asking the questions. I do remind you to please ask your questions in as um, general as a way as possible that still answers your question but is as beneficial to the whole group that's listening at the same time because certainly if you have very, very specific questions for your circumstance, then you should just email those to me and let Ted and I correspond with you directly. Okay, so I'm going to unmute the lines here. Okay. Can I ask a question? Yes, go ahead. Would you um, introduce yourself briefly first and then ask your question? Hi, my name is Carol, and I'm actually from Acton also. Oh, hi. And um, I have a question about niacin. Uh, I saw it listed, but I didn't see any amount. Um, I know some cardiologists will put um, high cholesterol patients on higher doses of uh, uh, the nicotinic acid, I believe it's called, uh, the flush type of niacin. But I'm wondering... Um, what the benefit is for mito patients. And I'm reading where I thought it affected complex one. Um, For myself, my experience has been that the first time I've been able to endure strength exercises. So I'm wondering what you have to say about that. Um, So niacin, at those higher doses that's utilized for for cholesterol, to help build up the good cholesterol. Uh, over the past few years, it's fallen out of favor because they've shown there's no real additional benefit uh, with, with that cardiac risk, uh, like heart attack or stroke risk. So it's kind of fallen out of favor for utilization at higher doses. For mitochondrial patients, uh, you, those doses are, are actually much higher. It's one of the few times you're going to see a, a therapy for something else um, at a higher dose than for, for mitochondrial with a, with a supplement. Um, in that situation, um, usually it's, it's lower doses. I've seen anywhere from 10 to maybe 50 or 75 milligrams a day. Um, it, uh, vitamin B3 is, is uh, not utilized by a, lot of situa- by a lot of parts of the body, and small amount really goes a long way. Um, that helps mitigate the flushing effect. Um, it also helps um, you know, utilize the drug to its best ability without, without becoming a a cost issue because taking 500 milligram or 1,000 milligram of, of niacin in a metabolic sense, it's not going to, you're just going to end up, you know, um, basically eliminating a lot of that drug or a lot of the niacin without any utilization at all. LDL also, but you're saying it builds the HDL. Carol, I may have cut you off at the beginning of that. Would you repeat that last part of your question? Oh, um, I thought it lowered the LDL, but are you saying that it raises, you said the good cholesterol, are you talking about the good part of the LDL or just the HDL? It does have some LDL lowering effect, but it's mostly an increase in the HDL effect. That's what they were utilizing it for. Um, 
and that's a that's a very high doses. But they've 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 shown that 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 effect over the past few years may not be very beneficial at all. So they've kind of stayed away from it. And can I just add a question? Does the CoQ10, when it's taken in the ubiquinol form, does that um, affect cholesterol if you take it too much? Is an adverse? Uh, you said taking too much can have adverse event uh, effect, and I didn't hear what that adverse effect was. So CoQ10 at high, uh, at very high doses, if your body doesn't utilize it, it gets stored in fat tissue and can actually have uh, what's called a pro-oxidant effect. So instead of quenching free radicals, it can produce free radicals. So that's why you want to make sure you don't take too much of it uh, unless, you know, your your blood work or, or muscle biopsy or tissue biopsy or anything like that, you know, shows that, you know, you're very deficient and you need a, a lot of dosing. Um, the... Um, uh, the ubiquinol part or any any form of, of CoQ10 isn't going to have an effect on cholesterol, but okay. cholesterol-lowering medications like Lipitor, um, mm -hmm. I can't remember the other ones, that's the most popular, Simvastatin, Socor. I'm trying to think of the brand names, they're all generic. Ever so <laughs> yeah. Um, so th uh, those actually affect CoQ10 production in the body. Okay. Um, and a lot of people who are on those are recommended to take CoQ10 because it gets depleted. So from a from a heart risk perspective, that's beneficial. But also because a lot of the side effects of um, those those types of drugs, they cause like muscle pain, et cetera, and CoQ10 tends to alleviate that that pain because it's the CoQ10 depletion that's, that's causing it. Thank you. Thank you, Ted. Um, Ted, I wanted to make a comment on earlier in your presentation, you had mentioned the importance of documentation when you started uh, the supplements or when you're increasing dose. And I just wanted to mention that, um, albeit not perfect, it's a very useful tool, and that's the MitoAction app, which is a free app which was designed specifically to help do just that, track what you're feeling as you add on um, increased doses and change your supplements so that you can actually see over a period of time how you feel and then you can share that with your physician in a, in a way that's a little bit more like data and not just how you're feeling, which can be um, so subjective. So that's a free app that you can find on iTunes and um, certainly um, can be helpful. I have a couple questions that have come in from email, but I'll, I'll um, save those for a second. Let's see if anybody else on the call has a question. Who would like to ask the next question? This is Jan from Southern California. Hi, Jan. I have a question about uh, Lucorvin and CoQ10. I find that when I give my son that, it increases his seizures. And I don't know uh, if, it, if there's yellow food coloring and the CoQ10 that's the problem? Can you enlighten me a little bit on that? Um, so CoQ10, just as a as a chemical, as a pure as a pure chemical, is a very yellowish orange color. Um, so I mean, if there's additional dyes or anything like that in there, I can't speak to it. I mean, it would depend on what formulation you're buying or getting. Um, and leucovorin is also a very yellow color uh, as well, just as a as a chemical property of of of, of both of those uh, medications. Um, I haven't heard of either one of those two agents increasing risk of seizures. Um, I'm not saying that it's not possible. Uh, like I said, everyone's biochemistry is, is very different, so it's not, you know, it's not something I would, I would say it's impossible. Um, 
I, I, I don't know. I mean, I would definitely double check with, you know, whoever your child is seeing as a neurologist uh, and, and uh, metabolics, and maybe see if they can talk between the two of them. Um, you know, maybe there's maybe one's heard of some situation that the other one may not have heard of, and uh, between their individual patients, and then you know, be able to uh, have a better idea or understanding of that. Um, if if your child is sensitive to dyes and those are in there, then you know, maybe trying to find either a, a dye-free uh, uh, supplement or getting it compounded so there aren't any dyes or added or additives in there. Um, and that way you can be sure there's not an additive issue. That, that could be a, a first step in, in trying that out. One more thing. You talked about you were going to discuss uh, antibiotics that can damage the mito. Can you expand on that? Um, yeah, so on Mito Action's website, um, there's a list. Um, there's a list there, and it's also basically the same one that I, just, I, I rewrote on slide 30. Um, so... Uh, aminoglycosides are uh, IV antibiotics you can get in a hospital. Um, they they tend to stop uh, mitochondria from having DNA um, DNA copying, so they, they can't replicate properly, and that can lead to that can lead to damage. Um, there are um, other other types of antibiotics um, that aren't listed on this, but I think they're, they're probably on that on the MitoAction website. Um, all antibiotics have an effect on, on bacteria, but only some of them will have an effect on something that's, that's very similar to a mitochondria and to a uh, and to bacteria. So, for example, uh, penicillins um, and uh, cephalexin or cephalosporins, those aren't going to have an effect at all on mitochondria because they, they don't, the way they work on a bacteria is not similar to anything that's in a mitochondria. But other medications like um, Cipro or Levaquin, um, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a, a couple of other uh, ones that work on like uh, DNA or uh, protein synthesis. But you know the way that the, uh, the way that a mitochondria makes its DNA copies or makes its own proteins is very similar to how a bacteria does. So you know human human cells and, and, and human mitochondria will have an effect. Will be affected by those other other antibiotics, and it's definitely something to, to uh, discuss in detail with uh, whatever prescriber you're you're getting an antibiotic from, whether it's in, in a hospital or as an outpatient. Um, but you know, make them aware that this is a situation. You want to make sure that it's going to be not n not affecting the mitochondria as much as possible. Uh, and if you have to, you know, have them talk with your uh, uh, metabolic doctor, that would be ideal. Thank you. We're not hearing anything. Sorry. Uh, we're not here. I'm not hearing anything. Oh, okay. Uh, is there any, uh, 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 yeah, I don't know. 
Uh, maybe Christy is on muted. I don't know, or she lost the line. I don't know. I'm not hearing anything. Okay. Yeah. So that's not for me then. Okay. And, and anybody else have any questions or anything? Ted, or? can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, right, it's my okay. my um too many controls on my side. So <laughs> sorry. Yes. Yeah, um, we we can never have a call without a little bit of technical difficulty. So. Um, apologies. The question you guys covered very well. Um, the the question that I had that had come in over email is about um, taking the the supplements, whether to start one at a time or whether to um, you know kind of most patients start with a prescription and then take all of them at once. Obviously, Ted, you're not a, a physician and not prescribing these, but in your experience in working with patients, what have you heard that most patients do or how do they um, like to approach starting new supplements? So usually in, um, it, it's prescriber-defined. Uh, um, some prescribers like to start off with you know, one or two supplements and then slowly add on as a, as a patient as well. Um, usually with uh, with younger children, um, other other prescribers like to just start everybody at you know one set of dosing and then see how see how they feel how it works and then make any adjustments based on you know future blood work or um, or even initially if blood work takes a while to come back uh, they might just start somebody on something and then make adjustments like the following month or two months later or so because sometimes the blood work takes a while to come back uh, for metabolics. Um, I, I, I mean, we've had some patients that we've had to strip away things to see, you know, was this one thing that was causing the side effect or was it not beneficial? Um, you know, certainly for and from an insurance standpoint, we had to strip away certain things to see how, uh, see about coverage. You know, they're, they're not going to pay for the lipoic acid, for example, or something like that. Uh, we've had to pull it out and either they paid for it out of pocket or they stopped it to see how they would do. Um, that, you know, Again, it's a case-by-case basis. From what I've, from the success or, or anything from a lot of my, my patients that I've seen, um, I can't say that one I, one theory or one idea is better than another. Uh, I, you know, everybody, I guess, kind of does well on on the individual plan because they're working well with the prescriber, or they're keeping track of what whatever changes are happening with them. Those are usually like the the more successful uh, cases that I've. I can kind of point out to uh, versus, you know, starting with one or, or many things at, at once. Great. Thank you. Yep. Okay. Um, let's take another question from the folks on the line. Who would like to ask the next question? Okay. I have another question that's come in over email so we can um, tackle that one. Going back to what you were saying, Ted, about ubiquinone versus ubiquinol, I feel like this is a, a great question because it's a point of confusion also. Um, maybe we could just go back to that and just talk a little bit more about the difference and your opinion on using one versus the other and in what type of scenario. And people also get very confused then about how there's a change in dosing related to the two. So would you go back to that and discuss that a little further? Um, so um, I, I spoke with a few prescribers regarding this, this question because it popped up with, with patients. Uh, you know, it's popped up with prescribers, too. Um, basically, the, the ubiquinone and ubiquinol are two sides of the same coin. Uh, one is the reduced form 
of CoQ10 and one is the oxidized form of CoQ10. Um, the the um, the utilization by the body uh, from a biochemical perspective and from all the research and everything that, we, that we've looked into, um, administering one versus the other wouldn't have a major, uh, a major change in its effect in the body. Um, from a dosing scheme, um, I don't know why there's differences, I'll be honest. I do know why there's a difference between the idebinone and the other two, but the other two, I mean, are pretty much you know, one to one, from what I can understand from everything that I've that, I, that I've read or looked at, um, I think the recommendations are out there just because the individual companies that make one or the other have made those recommendations, and especially since ubiquinol is newer, uh, it's only been around maybe five, no, more than five, probably like six to eight years or so, uh, especially for, in a, you know from a compounding perspective. Um, I think that that's why we're stuck on two different figures for. The, the two different types of dosing um, for effect, um, and I've asked prescribers this: I'm like, have you seen a better effect from one versus another, this or that? Um, anecdotally, uh, some patients say they respond better to one form versus another. Um, but is there any clinical evidence behind that? No one can. You know, there, there's nothing. There's no literature out there saying that you know one is going to have a better effect than the other. You know, uh, it's it, it's all based on you know theory from the chemical structures, um, which is why you know one says it's better absorbed versus the other. It's the it's what the manufacturers may state on their uh, on their labeling of these uh, these individual drugs when they're made you know over the counter. Um, but there's just not enough you know hard evidence to say one versus the other is a better situation or why the dosing is different. Um, I. Uh, Personally, I think if a patient responds to one form versus another, it's you know it might as well keep them on that form. I, I don't see a reason to have a switch or to to change between the forms. And you can you know you can always try one or the other depending on you know how your how your doctor feels about it, um, and see if there's a better response. So the the jury might still be out, and things are still evolving on that front. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know when or if there's ever going to be an answer, honestly. Um, okay, great. Let's. Um, we have time for a couple more questions. Is anybody on the line? Uh, let me unmute everyone. Anybody have another question? Yeah, I do. Okay, go ahead. This is Sue from New York. Um, how about as far as gastric bypass and the absorption? Um, with with all the formulations of the types of um, uh, types of drugs, there um, isn't much of an issue with gastric bypass uh, because none of them are extended release formulations. Right. Okay. okay. And none of them really need any uh, any sort of acid activation in the stomach or anything like that in order to become more effective or better absorbed. I would probably recommend a liquid formulation in that situation just to be on the safe side, because again, there's okay. no, no clinical evidence one way or the other, but from the generic, uh, generic thought process behind uh, dosing medications in gastric bypass patients, um, that's, you know, I don't think it would have much of an effect one form or the other. Okay, thank you. No problem. Okay, we're, we got some great questions and uh, a lot of great content to absorb. Anybody have another question they'd like to ask? 
All right. Well, I don't have answers on this one, but let's touch on the insurance issue because it is something that um, is unfortunately so challenging um, for all of us in the MITO community, I think on both the provider side and on the patient and family side. Um, so there was a time when um, a combination of supplements in the compound really helped with insurance coverage. But um, unfortunately, as I think more patients are using compounding and it is costly, it's kind of become one of those blanket denials regardless of the need. So my first part of this question is, Ted, is there anything that you have found that has been really kind of a magic formula in terms of helping get coverage? And then the second is I'd like to then I'll address this to the group if anyone has had any success that they'd like to share um, in helping that. Certainly we are trying for everything from legislation um, at the state level to mandate coverage for the Mito cocktail. Um, Mito Action has been working on that actually for about seven years to, you know, representing individual patients with, with helping them to write those letters of appeals and so forth. But it, t it tends to be um, a very difficult process. Ted, what's what are your thoughts? And certainly, there's no right answers here. But um, so with with insurance companies, um, unfortunately, they all have capitations, or for the most part, have capitations on um, how much. Okay, uh, so whether they they say any compound over fifty dollars or over two hundred dollars or whatever that limit is is going to require a prior auth or won't be approved or anything like that. Other insurance companies will just say flat out, it doesn't matter, it's a compound, we're not covering it. Um, there's really nothing to add to a formula that will make it more covered versus not. Um, it, it's, it, there are so many insurance plans out there, and granted, while, let's say, you know, Caremark or Express Scripts or whatever process for a lot of different insurance companies now, um, they they still you know, have to listen to the individual benefits office that the, patient, uh, the patient's purchasing the insurance through. So, um, for example, where I work, the way that insurance gets contracted is different than the way you know, uh, my, my fiancé's or somebody else's work contracts the insurance company. Even though they may be exactly the same you know, uh, health care and, and pharmacy benefits. Um, as, as far as the company that's processing it, but they might just have different restrictions on what they're able to accept or not. Um, the best way of trying to get things covered with, uh, with patients is, um, especially if you work for a smaller company, see if you can work with either the HR or the owner or something like that with, with, uh, with the company you're working for and be like, hey, you know, this is a situation, you know, compounded medications are critical for myself, my child, you know, uh, for somebody, uh, it, it, it's um, something that's really necessary. You know, the insurance is saying we're not we're not able to get it. We've we've gone the route of prior authorization. We've got the doctor's very little letter of medical necessity, et cetera. Is there anything we can do for a policy change? See if we can if we can make a change. And even if you're working for a big company like I don't know uh, HP or some, or some uh, you know national company, if enough people inside the company call up and talk with their you know HR benefits. Uh, office and, and there's enough of a voice behind compounds are necessary for, you know, myself, my family member, this, that, or the other, you know, it starts making these companies think twice about what they may want to cover 
in their in their packages for employee benefits. Um, those are the bigger success stories, honestly, that I, that, I, that I have to share versus, you know, individual medication changes. It might be that an insurance company may say one part of a mitococktail or any compound may not be covered. You know, if you don't have it in there, then we'll, we'll pay for it. And there may be an adjustment that has to be made through the doctor if it's an active ingredient or, you know, through a, a, a compounding stabilization if it's an inactive ingredient. Great. Thank you. Um, well, Ted, this has been really helpful, and I think that we've uh, had a wonderful presentation as well as opportunity for some discussion with the questions and answers. Um, let me just mention that recently you work for Actin Pharmacy, which is part of a bigger group called D Dino Health, and I wanted you to just um, briefly talk about what, what you guys do, and um, I recently learned that you also ship out of state now, so you're licensed in more than just Massachusetts. Yeah. So this could be really of interest to some of our mito patients. So will you talk about that for a second? Sure, sure. So um, uh, Dino Health, uh, we're owned by a uh, family, Stodd and Ray Dino. Um, they, their father started uh, the uh, – they purchased uh, Key's drug back in – believe it's the 80s. I'm sure that, you know, Saad and Ray or whoever's listening here is going to be texting me soon that you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, started with, with uh, Key's Drug, and then in, um, in the late 90s they bought Acton Pharmacy and more recently West Concord Pharmacy. Um, Key's Drug and Acton Pharmacy both do compounding. Uh, we do all sorts of different type of compounding. Like I said, we, we're, we're um, specialized in mitococktail. We also work with uh, uh, patients who have autism. Uh, we work with uh, uh, multiple doctors in the area for GI specialty, for neuronal uh, uh, neural disorders like seizures, et cetera. Um, we uh, act in pharmacy uh, is, is licensed in all the New England states, uh, New York, New Jersey, Florida, and a couple of other ones um, that most of we've done so because patients have lived in this area and moved out. So they wanted a continuity of care with us, so we've you know, gotten the licenses in the other states so we can send medication to them. Um, so we're more than willing to work with you know, prescribers, insurance companies in the area, in the individual states, you know, with patients who have needs. Uh, speaking with, uh, with a lady the other day, uh, her son has uh, mitochondrial disorder and is in California, uh, but can't, can't send to California, but I was able to try and refer them to a local pharmacy that can help them out. You know, kind of went over stuff with her, uh, you know, for side effects or anything like that that she has some questions about. Well, we're more than more than happy to help uh, help anybody if if we can't do some something because we're not in in that state that that we can have uh, we can ship medications to. And I would try and help refer you because we do work with other pharmacies throughout the country through professional organizations, um, et cetera, um, or just to help you you know get started, you know finding a doctor if you want to try and find a doctor in the England area or something like that. We, we, we try and help out where we can. Great. Well, um, certainly that's such an opportunity for patients. I have worked with Saad for many years and always appreciate both the knowledge and expertise and the personal commitment that you guys have um, to this community and and have stayed, you know, walking right in step with, with us and with many patients through these struggles that we've faced as a community and um, continue to advance the field of compounding for specifically mitochondrial disease as a therapy 
you know, as um, new supplements have kind of come into interest or new research has evolved. So that's really important, I think, to just go back to recognizing why a specialized compounding pharmacy is different than just, you know, picking up bottles of this stuff at Walmart on your own. It really is um, you're getting what you actually are supposed to be taking. And um, and I think for all the potential supplements that a mito patient might have to take, the opportunity to take less volume overall, whether it be liquid or capsule, or to change the formulation is incredibly helpful also. Um, we need we need room for fluids, you know, not not more medicines um, as a general rule. Well, Ted, for the sake of time, we're going to go ahead and wrap up, but I want to thank you on behalf of the entire um patient family and physician community who has been able to participate in this today and hear you speak. You've done a fantastic job providing an overview for us, and we're so grateful to the partnership with our friends at Actin Pharmacy, you know, for many years in supporting MitoAction and the patient community. So for everyone who's listening, this there will be a recording of this presentation, and we'll have it on our iTunes podcast library as well as on the website, so be sure to um, come back and listen to that or share with others who you think might find this relevant. And um, if you have any questions that we didn't get a chance to address today, just email those to me, director at mitoaction.org, and I'll certainly be glad to um, help you correspond with Ted. Ted, thank you again, and uh, we look forward to a fabulous rest of the month of September. Sounds a good plan. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, thank you. No problem. Take care. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Bye.